welcome to the Proper Mental Podcast. Normalising open and honest conversations about mental health by having open and honest conversations about mental health. episode 99 of the proper mental podcast my guest this week is ian winwood who is an author and a journalist who has spent more than 30 years writing for the likes of kerrang the nme q magazine the daily telegraph and countless other publications and his time spent in and around the music industry has given him an incredible insight into the lives of musicians and bands and rock stars and how they live both on and off stage and he's written a book about it it's called bodies and it explores the music industry and the rock and roll lifestyle. And it gets into how that way of life and that industry in particular really impacts people's mental health in a negative way. And that's what we chat about in this episode. We talk about the music world, music industry, the type of people that it usually attracts and why it seems to be such a breeding ground for mental illness and addiction. And it's an incredible book. If you've listened to this show for a while, you'll know that I'm a massive music fan. I've always loved reading about music. I've bought the magazines, the biographies. I've always loved rock and roll mythology and all the stories that came with it. I've never thought about those stories from the perspective of mental illness. And then I read Ian's book, and now I'm thinking about all of those stories through the lens of mental illness. It's really got me thinking. So I was absolutely over the moon when Ian said he'd come on for a chat. And he tells me about some of the bands that he's met and written about over the years, bands like Biffy Clyro and Metallica and Frank Turner and Green Day. And we chat about the different ways of working in music can affect mental health. And more specifically, how bizarre behaviour and serious addiction issues are completely normalised and more often than not celebrated. We talk about how Ian became a journalist and how he set out to write this book and all the different things he discovered along the way. And we also chat about Ian's own experiences with mental ill health and how he was able to kind of blend in perfectly with the dysfunctional world of rock and roll excess. It's a lovely conversation. Give the book a read. I can't recommend it highly enough. It's kind of like a book of two parts. And half of it is is looking at the music industry, looking at the lifestyle, looking at the bands within it that Ian's met and the effect that it has on people's mental health and how some bands are able to navigate it differently to others. It looks at a lot of anecdotes and well-known stories from within music and explores maybe what was really going on with people's headspace and the other part of the book is Ian's own story his own journey with mental illness him getting more and more poorly and being able to hide in this very strange world that he was living on the outside of for so long and he kind of weaves these stories in and out of each other through the book it's not really like anything I've ever read before and um, yeah just give it a read it's absolutely wonderful and I can't thank Ian enough for his time for coming on and having a chat about it if you want to follow him on social media at Ian Winwood one there's a link in the episode notes to the Rolling Stone website and there's an extract there from the book that they published around about the time it came out and of course you can get that book in all the usual book buying places shop local support your local bookstore innit if you'd like to catch up with me on social media at Proper Mental Podcast or via my website, propermentalpodcast.com. If you enjoy this episode, if you enjoy any other episodes, let me know, screenshot it, pop it on your story, 
most importantly, leave a review. It's always very much appreciated. This is episode 99 of the Proper Mental Podcast with Ian Winwood. Thank you very much for listening. Enjoy. So here we are with another episode of the Proper Mental Podcast. My guest this week is Mr. Ian Winwood. How are you, mate? Uh, I'm very well, Tom. Thank you very much. Hello to you and hello to all your listeners. Oh, mate, thank you so much to, uh, for joining me today. I was, um, yeah, I've, I've recently read your book and I loved it. And I was so chuffed when you said that you'd come on to have a chat about it, mate. So thank you for your time today. It's, um, it's very much appreciated. It's my pleasure. It certainly beats talking to myself, which I would actually be doing were I not doing this. So <laughs> the win, the win-win for both of us, Tom. That's it. Exactly. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I suppose the best place to start really is probably where everyone asked you to start, Ian, and that's with your route into music journalism. Was that um, was that always the plan to write about music? Uh, y- yes. You mean from from when I was a very young man? Yeah. 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 In in so far as I as I had a plan. Uh, Tom, I, I'm getting on a bit now, so I belong to a generation of children that as young teenagers had, had jobs. I'm not suggesting that because this is no longer the case, that's the reason the country has gone to the dogs, but it just so happens. So, and I say I had two jobs, Tom. I was at first a paper boy, but then got promoted to being like the shops no, not shop steward because that's that's a union position but i'm trying not to use the word boss here but i guess it's as good as any um and i would have to get get to the to the shop again wh smith for the time that the, the day's papers and publications periodicals arrived and i would drag them in at the back of the shop into this little underground windowless underground bunker from where I would sort the, the papers uh, into the 14 rounds. I can, I can even, not only can I remember this vividly, Tom, I can smell what, what the, the print. And, yeah, yeah. and this, is, this is back in the age of print media. There were bundles and bundles of these damn things. Now, that hour is possibly the most precious time, certainly the, most, um, the, 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 the time from my childhood that has the most bearing on my adult life because two things happened. It gave me a, an hour in which to read the newspapers or, you know, scan the newspapers. So I, because, you know, people at that time only really took one newspaper and that informed their worldview. Suddenly I had all the newspapers. So I could see that there was the Guardian was saying one thing, for example, and the Mail, obviously, were saying something completely different. And I had a, a little bit of skin in this game as well, or at least my family did, because I, came, I come from a family of miners. And although my father used to be a miner at that time, he's a, a former miner at that time, he still worked in the mining industry. He worked for a company called Pitcraft that made mining equipment. And the miners' strike, listeners, to, a lot of your listeners will be too young to remember this, the miners' strike actually began in, in my hometown uh, in 1984. And I would go up to visit my dad. 
and, and when I got this job, it was the tail end of, of, of what is known in my hometown and, and likely in, in, in South Wales as well, where you're from, Tom. It's not known as the miners' strike. It's simply known as the strike. And I would read these accounts of in the right-wing press of miners being a threat to the nation and the, the stability of the country. And, and just think, well, that doesn't really tally with being in a pub with my dad. My dad would always take me to a pub and meeting striking miners who, and I've just got a very different picture from them. So that, so without a, a penny spent on a university course, without any formal uh, education at all in that field, I got a crash course in media literacy, which has served me I cannot tell you how important, I can't tell you what a crucial lesson that was that I didn't even know I was getting. And then just to wrap this up, one, I, 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 I was by this point, uh, people use the word obsessed, so I'll, 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 I'll sidestep that. Certainly fixated on music. I'd started going to concerts. Uh, when I was 14 and as a corollary to that I'd started noticing the music press but what I had noticed is that none of it really spoke to me or sung to me and then one day in a bundle there was this magazine called Kerrang and it's strange to think back Tom because Kerrang at that time was really it was still fortnightly at that time it would subsequently go weekly quite quickly thereafter but almost all of the bands it covered were rubbish. So I'm not quite sure, although my, my music tastes were still, you know, my brain was still soft clay uh, and, and my, you know, eye and ear were not yet, you know, working, working quite up to code. You know, I did know that a lot of the bands that were featured were in fact wholly rubbish, but yet, there was just something about it that communicated directly to me. I, I actually did a friend of mine who works at Kerrang. I did an interview with for him yesterday because he's writing a book about the magazine. And I, I think I can explain exactly what it is that caught my eye, uh, that I inferred uh, a connection between me and it. And it's the it's simply the name of the magazine, and 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 I, I I tend to explain this to people because people might have an idea of what Kerrang is, which isn't actually quite true, or isn't actually quite correct. Kerrang is an onomatopoeia, an onomatopoeia being a word that describes the thing that sounds like the, the, the thing that it describes. So Kerrang is the sound of a guitar struck with force, which means that its remit is any music that is loud. And so it wasn't straight jacketed. Although I liked some metal, I was by no means a metalhead. It wasn't straight jacketed, which is why over the years when I, 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 I don't want to spoiler alert, I get to write for Kerrang in the fullness of time, um, which is why it's proved so adaptable and why you know, one week I would be interviewing, for example, Slayer. Slayer's obviously the, the benchmark for, for metal. But on other, in other weeks, I'd be interviewing the Beastie Boys or the White Stripes or Muse or any Idlewild. It, 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 so I, 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 that's what I recognised in it. And when my mum said to me when I was 14 years old, as parents do, 
have you had a thing a think about what you would like to do when you grow up I still actually haven't yet grown up but she was thinking you know idealistically uh, and I said um I said yeah actually I, I have had, I have thought about what I'd like to do I'd like to write for Kerrang so not I didn't say I want to be a music journalist I said I want to write for Kerrang and she said um well, somebody does do those jobs. I, I don't see why it shouldn't be you, which would, those are pretty important words in the story of my life. And, um, and so that set me on my course. And that's the story, Tom, in, in uh, minute forensic detail for you, <laughs> for you and your listeners there. Oh, mate, yeah, that's, um, you know, it's incredible insight from your mum, right? To kind of just set you free to pursue that path with that, it that sentence. That's incredible. Yeah, it's either that or really, really terrible parenting. You know, <laughs> a, a little bit, a little bit from column A, a little bit from column B. Yeah, that's it. I suppose looking back with hindsight, we'd say yeah. it, was a, it was a wise move. Yeah, yeah. No, no, fair play, fair but, play. But yeah, I mean, you are absolutely right. There, there are um, there are parents in this world. I mean, I was about to say, unfortunately, if I'd said, you know, I want to, uh, well, I don't know, some, I want to, you know, play Rachmaninoff's piano concertos at Carnegie Hall when I when I you know I've got hands like a plasterer then it would be remiss for your for <laughs> yeah. parents to say yeah sure let's 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 pursue that but I was I was in so much as I was good at school at all I I, I excelled at English so it wasn't it was possible to to see this happen yeah sure yeah and it is you know you talk about the um, like the music press and stuff. And I think if there's anyone listening who is more listening for the mental health conversation and not so maybe the music conversation, they might not even realize that back in the day, how big print media in music was, oh, right? Like it was king, wasn't it? It was the, the be all and end all of how anyone knew anything about the bands that they liked. In the early part, certainly when I was, was a teenage reader, but in the early part of what I laughingly describe as my career, Tom, or the, or especially the kind of music that I was writing about in the 90s, people couldn't hear this music at all. The only way that you could hear this music is if you were to buy an album or, or you were lucky enough to hear the music on the radio. So the music press was were the gatekeepers between, you know, it was, it was stringently ring-fenced. There were the bands and the artists, and then there was the general public, and in between patrolling that border were the music journalists and DJs as well and MTV. But we decided what people should he will uh, let me get let me let me get this right. Our say so allowed people, allowed bands to be heard and allowed audiences to hear about those bands. And then there are things that are good and there are things that are bad about that. I'm now glad that people are able to discover for themselves what a band sounds like because sometimes the music press gets it wrong. There's no doubt about that. But yeah, it was, it was, it was a very formalized structure, and and it, it, yes, it had it had enormous influence back then. The NME 
we're selling more than, and, and the Melody Maker and Sounds, those are the three music papers. Kerrang! was always ticking along at a solid 40,000 readers a week. Um, which, by the way, music magazines would kill for today. <laughs> um, but the but the enemy and Melia Maker and Sounds were selling several hundred thousand copies a week, you know. The, and they came and they were published on a Wednesday, as was Kerrang. And it was a pivotal, pivotal day for music fans, uh, myself included. As, as a teenager, I would literally, literally be unable to sleep well at least on the night on the tuesday night before Kerrang was due to be published that's, that's that's how important it was to me yeah definitely i can still name some of the records in my collection that i bought purely because the nme gave them nine out of ten which never happened so i right. think well if if it got a nine out of ten it must be good right i'm gonna go and buy it and then even if i didn't like it i'd have to make myself like it because it cost 15 quid you know yeah. so it's a, it's a, just a different a different world right i mean imagine world. trying to explain to a young person i know who i i mean i hate them obviously trying try to explain to a young person that in order to hear a record you would have to pay the equivalent at least the equivalent of 35 quid just to hear it you didn't know if yeah. it was any good or not just to hear it you'd have to knock out 30 35 quid they i mean to uh, someone in my book someone in bodies uh that i speak to makes this point they think you were fucking insane you know <laughs> but but those are the worlds so i had quite I, I, in that sense i i i i took that part of my job I, I I I took it as as I felt that I had a responsibility, not to the bands actually, who I always wanted to represent fairly. I think I might be transposing my older self onto younger shoulders there, Tom. But to the to the readers, and it was strange. I'm going on a bit here, so I'll move on. But it was strange. I I mean, I obsessed over the music press, but I could tell who was lying to me. I just knew. I didn't know why they were lying to me, but I could tell. And when I finally entered the game, I discovered that things such as political thinking, like, you know, being aligned to a band, having a direct route between the writer and the band, being friends with the band, these were the reasons that people were lying to me. And, and I've always been quite hard line about not falling, in, not falling into that trap. To actually, to the point of pomposity, Tom. But, also, but I could also tell those that would just say, you know, let me conclude this little section with this, actually. The job is blindingly simple. It is to make the this, the distance between what I would say in private about a group and what I write for, for, for people for the for people that I don't know, I guess for the public, as slim as is humanly possible, you know? And and that was my view from the start, and it continues to be my modus operandi now. Yeah. I, I'm not here to be friends with the groups. I'm here to write for for the reader and because i don't know who the reader is it's to write for myself as a reader god if people are going to be switching off in droves now i sound unbearable i'm actually much more fun than this you know? <laughs> well kind of um what 
really interests me to ask you is is because after I read your book, it kind of mm. it made me think about how I've looked at music. Right? Let me. I'm just going to try and explain this a bit better. But I've I've been a massive music fan my entire life, and something I've loved almost as much as the music itself is the the mythology, the stories, the documentaries. I've read as many biographies as I have listened to albums, I think. Mm. And I've never looked at those stories, even as someone with um, lived experience of mental mental illness and someone mm. who talks and reads and digests a lot of this mental health stuff all the time. That's kind of what I do. I've never looked at the music industry and these stories that I've always loved through the lens of mental health until yeah. I read your book. And I can't stop thinking about that. And I was wondering uh, when you've been so emerged in the, in the industry as almost an insider, when you kind of like took a look around and went, hang on a minute, there's a, there's something going on here. And I, and I think there's a story in it. It was really late in the game, Tom, really late in the game. I guess I had thought about it. So in order to get a book, uh, in order to get a book deal, what a publisher requires is a proposal and proposals writing proposals are, are like pulling teeth with chopsticks right because though a commissioning editor at a publishing house in my in my in the case of, of bodies the publishing house is is favor and favor which has 12 nobel laureates with myself doubtless likely to be the 13th Nobel laureate uh, and um, I hope people can know I'm joking here by the way <laughs> uh, half joking so and then so you have so you write these proposals and then what happens and I know this because my wife works at Penguin so she I know this inside out you have an you have what's known as an acquisitions meeting so you, you will have uh, it, it, if I sound slightly distracted, it's because my cat is meowing, and and he, he doesn't come in. If it's sunny, he doesn't come in for for. But he comes in like twice a day, and then if if I'm on a podcast, in he comes. He's gone out again, <laughs> so we're good. So you have an acquisitions meeting, and and, and what it is, the the, uh, the people will say. I've, I've had this proposal. I, I think this is really good. And he has to, he or she or they has to persuade other the other people of the merits of this book. So they keep, and they keep coming back to you and going, all right, can you tweak this little bit? And the, the damn things are about 10,000 words long. And so I guess when I put the proposal together, it had occurred to me, Tom, to piece together the pieces of fracture and death and, 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 and certainly the more headline aspects of my story, of the story that I've, I've tried to tell. The book is, 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 it's more than two stories, but it's two, it's two points of view. That's the first time, talking to you, that's the first time I've figured out how to describe that. It's two points of view. It's my own story in terms, I guess, of a memoir of being unwell and being idiotic as well. Uh, and it's also a work of journalism and anecdote where I tell the stories of other people and speak of my experiences uh, being in the orbit of mu musicians. 
So it had clearly occurred to me then because in writing the proposal over months it took, um, I was able to put together a cogent enough plan that it got greenlit by a, you know, a reputable publishing house. But as a writer, I do my thinking on the page, right? I sit down and I start writing. Here's a good analogy. If, 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 any of, if you, you or any of your listeners, Tom, can remember the scene in Wallace and Gromit at which they're flying along on a model railway, uh, on a train on a model railway, and Gromis is laying the track. Gromis yeah, is laying yeah. the track as the train goes around. That's how I write. I'm very rarely thinking, I'm, I'm very rarely thinking a paragraph ahead, and sometimes I'm thinking a sentence ahead. So that's sort of my technique. So I do my thinking on the page. And I don't, I think what, so I learned so much writing the book about my thoughts developed exponentially when writing the book. So when I began writing it, I was thinking of the people who had, you know, the damage the music industry can do. When people were asked, when people asked me, when I reached out to people to speak to me, and when people asked me what I was doing, uh, what I was up to, and I'd say, I'm writing a book, and they'd say, well, what's it about? And my shorthand answer was, was it's a, a book about how the music industry makes people ill. It's actually about more than that, but that's certainly one of the, the themes. But it's also, and what I noticed while writing it, and what, and and that I, I'm sure I didn't, I didn't conceive of when, when certainly when I when I wrote the the proposal, and and I imagine when I started writing the book itself, is the the quiet ways in which uh, the music industry brands people. Uh, and I mean brands as in as if they were cattle. Uh, so, for example, if you are a young band, particularly, well, now even, but if you are a, a young band who has a measure of of apparent success, you get a you get a deal with Warner Brothers, say, or Epitaph for Roadrunner, and you get a chance to support My Chemical Romance, for example, who are a very forgiving crowd. Uh, the, I'm, I'm not going to name the band. This is a, a real example. And you get to go to Tokyo to play to another forgiving audience. And a, a, a music journalist who may or may not be from Barnsley goes out there with you and interviews you. And you go out to a, a, a pirate-themed sushi restaurant and the record company, which costs a fortune, and it's one of the best nights out you've ever had. And it's all quote-unquote free. It's not free because it will be billed back to you and it will be taken off your earnings. But that's never explained to you. And it was never explained to me either that I was dining on the musicians. I was eating and drinking and flying and staying in hotels on the musicians' dime. 
And you, you're on the cover of Kerrang! once or twice. And the audience in Tokyo goes wild for you. But they're going wild for all the bands on the bill that day. And there are about 30 of them. But you don't think about that because you don't necessarily see it because you only see your own set. And you're on the cover of Kerrang! And you get to go on the Vans Warped Tour. And your dreams, apparently, are becoming a reality, right? Now, none of that is... That should only be viewed as being impermanent. There comes a time where it because the the audiences that you're playing to, even if you're headlining a show to say sixteen hundred people, if you're one album in, that's not yet your audience. They just happen to have come to see you. And they might well become your audience, as they did for the Arctic Monkeys. That's a, a good example. But they might very easily pass on to other bands, which is what happened in the case of this band that I'm, I'm describing. And then the band is suddenly unable to, to, to get a record deal. They've released from their recording contract. So they crowdfund an album. But the momentum is is draining. It's and 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 a loss of momentum for a band is is it's a, it's a death now because the the, the uh, pessimism sets in, and and it's incredibly uh, it becomes incredibly unstable because it's incredibly hard work being in a band, and then suddenly it's over. That uh, that that's over. And you're 25, 26, 27, say, years old, and you were in the game. The thing that you wanted, you were in the game, and you're no longer in the game. And that, to varying degrees, I'm not meaning to suggest that uh, you will be huddled up under your duvet, a, a damage case for the rest of your life. But it's marked you, and and it will and it will mark you for the rest of your life. I'll tell you a very quick story that, and I can name him because he tweeted about it. But last last or last, um, actually, I should have started with the story. But but I'll tell you it quickly because I think it's a good story. Late last autumn. My wife and I were married in, in December, just gone, and it took four attempts to get married because of, you can guess because of what. Yeah. Uh, and we'd gone down, we live in Camden, and we'd gone down to the Camden Registry Office to, 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 to register our, 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 our marriage. And the, uh, the third attempt to get married, that was the, the first two we, we postponed. The third attempt, with only a very, very small uh, number of guests, you know, because that was all we were allowed. That was cancelled at 22 hours notice when Johnson shut down the country in December 2020. The point of me telling you this is that you know, so much time had elapsed, so we knocked it back a year. So much time had elapsed, Tom, that we were required to go and register our vows, our, our, our wedding again. So down we went to, to down near Holborn on Southampton Row. And... Um, we were waiting 
And it, it's sort of like an episode of Mr. and Mrs. You, you, you're going together and then you're going individually and answer questions to make sure it's not an arranged marriage or a, or a marriage of convenience. And this, this guy in a face mask, larger man, tall, jet black hair, jet black beard, kind of trudged in and said, and it was my wife that, that, who, who, who's, who's kept her maiden name, uh, had read, I can't do grown up stuff. She'd registered all this. And, and he, you know, he, he came trudging in quite, quite despondently, quite grumpily, actually. I hope he doesn't mind me saying. And he said, uh, he said my wife's name. My wife doesn't like being a public figure as much as I do, Tom. So I'll just say, he said my wife's name. And we went, and in we went to, to his office. Bernie man, he's got a mask on. And he, looked, he took our identification, looked at my wife's, my fiance's, that she was then, and looked at my, my passport, and said, Ian Winwood. And I said, yeah. And he said, you reviewed my band. And I thought, this could really, really go either way now. And I said, did I give you a bad review? And he said, um, no, actually, you gave me, you were quite kind to us. And I thought, well, that's a relief. At least we're going to be able to get married. <laughs> and uh, this, this gentleman, this, this guy's name was, is Lawrence Beveridge, and he played, and indeed now plays again, in a group called Fearless Vampire Killers, who are a prime example of what I'm talking about. And over the course of, you know, my wife's interview and my interview, we discovered that being in the band uh, had um, at least temporarily ruined his relationship with his best friend, who was also a member of the band, had given him a nervous breakdown. Uh, and something that he told me, I just can't, I cannot stop thinking about it, the, the he worked at a different office as well, just a mile or two up the road, which is opposite a venue called Coco, which is here in Camden Town. Uh, and he said, I, I was working there one day and I looked out of the window and Creeper were playing there that night, who were not entirely dissimilar from Fearless Vampire Killers. And it's the kind of show at which people will begin queuing up from, from, from the morning. So he was looking at this queue all day. And he said, I looked out and I thought, oh God, what have I done with my life? And it, it, so those sort of two or three years in the game had, had, had marked him. Now, it was remarkable because I had finished writing the book or finished, it was about to be proofread. So it was almost finished. Literally the day before, or it might even be that morning. It was hot off the press. And I just thought, I cannot, I cannot think of a clearer example of one of the things that I'm talking about in this. So it's not just to wrap up this answer that I've been given for the last week or so. It's, it, it's not just the deaths or the suicides or the addictions or the rehab or the, you know, uh, the imprisonment or, and all of these sort of, you know, the Taylor Hawkins stuff, for example. It's, just, it's, it's the, the quiet stuff as well. It's, it's, it's being in and then being out and then forever being out. And it, it, it never leaves you. So it's, it's, it, th those are its more subtle notes. Tom. Yeah. It's like, it's just giving someone their, their dream, everything they've always 
always wanted and taking it away with the other hand. And yeah. I think with things like that, it must be so difficult to separate your self-worth from crowds and record deals. And, you know, cause it's no judge on you as a person because the industry is just chewing you up and spitting you out. But how do you separate yourself? You know, mm. that's got to really strip something away from someone. So people don't want me anymore. And you know, that must be, um, you know, how do you not internalize that? How do you yeah. not blame yourself for it and think of yourself as a bad person if people don't want you anymore, you know? And also, Tom, very quickly, if, if you, that, is, that is so correct, what, what you have just said. But you've really, really got to cling tight to your own identity because people, it's easy to fall into the habit of, 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 of stopping asking questions of people because people come to you and say, how's the band going? How's the tour going? And so on and so forth. Um, I remember interviewing Green Day, in who I love, uh, in, um, in Mannheim. And, uh, and, you know, I know Billy. I mean, I don't have his phone number or anything. I think to, be, to call someone a friend, you have to have their phone number. But we're certainly friendly. And, uh, and I remember him approaching me and me saying, oh, you know, hi, hi, Billy, how are you? And he said, oh, the tour's going great. And I remember thinking, didn't ask about the tour, I asked about you. Now, given that I'm clearly name dropping in this section, alternatively, 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 uh, if I speak with Simon Neal from Biffy Clyro, who I, I certainly think are the best band in Britain, I think there's a case to say they're the best band in the world. But anyway, if I speak to him, not only will he ask me how I am, he'll ask me how my mum is, is, and he's never met my mum. So that's really a, a, I mean, Simon, there's a chapter in which Simon appears in the book, which is really seeing the situation through the eyes of the musician. It's the, first, it's, it's the sixth chapter. I call them tracks uh, in the book. And, and that's the first time where the book tries to figure out what's actually happening here. And I use him. I don't mean I use him. Uh, I, but I, 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 he's, the, he's our guide through that. And he, I could not have asked for a better uh, navigator for that, for, for, the, for, for the perils uh, as the musician sees them. Because uh, just very quickly, Tom, it has been said, and I'm I'm going to I'm going to qualify and caveat caveat this immediately. That the book is people have said to me that they think that the book is quite an important book, and I recoil from that straight away. But what I would say, and what I have figured out, is that I think that. It is this, a story that could only be told by, a, by someone who wasn't a musician, because musicians lack a vocabulary with which to voice legitimate concerns and legitimate complaints. So they say things like, I don't want to complain because I don't have a proper job. And I've heard that my lips to God's ears 200 times, okay? at least, 
And that itself is dangerous language, because if your job's not proper, it's improper. And if it's improper, it's illegitimate. And if you're illegitimate, you, you, you occupy a position of weakness. Um, what it isn't is, is a normal job. So let's change that description. But even internally, because you know the audience imagines the audience knows that, that that people in bands die or fall ill you know it's 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 that commonplace but i'm not sure that they know or can indeed be expected to know tom that it is the system itself it's the game itself that is doing that to them so i guess they think that they are just unlucky or programmed to be like that anyway and some of them are okay um, and the musicians themselves have imagined this before they entered the, the gates of the palace. They have imagined, they have idealized this life. So when faced with um, really crushing feelings of, of, of uh, or challenging feelings of being miles away, from, you know, a continent away from home, uh, and missing your family, whatever it might be, they doubt, I think, these feelings because they think of them as being treasonous or, 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 or the feelings being steeped in ingratitude and that there's something wrong with feeling this way because, oh my God, look what you've got. This is what you always wanted, isn't it? So they're kind of hamstrung from the start. They worry about sounding like they're whining. They worry about people that they know who are, and I don't just mean filleting chickens for a living. That's the, that's the example I always give, filleting chickens for a living. But, but you know, being a chartered accountant or, or, a, or a chef or, you know, things that they look upon as being proper jobs where they're, they're, they're just living the dream. Um, and so I think that if I if I have provided a service, and I didn't realize this at the time, it's because I I I, I I'm not prey to that to those thoughts. I can just I have just been able to look at it and say, actually, yeah, this is really unhealthy, and here's why it's unhealthy. And yeah. sort of I don't I don't have to worry uh, about thinking. Oh yeah, but look, we played Madison Square Garden as well. What, what am I? I don't. I can cut all that crap out and just say, "Here's what I see. Here, here are my conclusions." Yeah, sure. It's that whole thing of identity, isn't it? Getting caught up in identity and forgetting someone that is a human being who just happens to be a musician rather than a musician who's a human being, right? That's right. And, and you, you, I see this all the time in the conversations that I have on this podcast. Is you know, there's people who don't talk up or ask for help when they're struggling because they feel that their problems aren't big enough, you know? So we'll like, you know, I, I'm not doing very well, but I haven't tried to kill myself yet. And that person has, so therefore they should speak right. up and I shouldn't. And then I've seen it the other way as well. When people have problems that are so big that they didn't speak up because they didn't think anyone would believe them, mm. you know, and it, the, the, the polar opposites, but it's the same stigma, why yeah. different ends. And when you were talking then, it kind of remembered the same thing. It's like a self stigma because I've got this, um, you know, because I've got this opportunity because I get to make music for a living and therefore I can't be unhappy, but mm. you know, no one's going to the doctor and saying, I think I've 
you know, I'm struggling with my mental health. And the doctor's saying, here's what you need for that. Go and play a gig at Madison Square Garden. That'll right. sort your eyes out. You know, it's not, uh, it's just it, out of context. It makes no sense, but you can completely see why someone would start to think like that, right? Yeah, totally. Yeah. Totally. Why am I not happy? Why am I, why am I, why am I not happy? Well, I'm not happy because I'm ungrateful. You know, I, I mean, I, I, I would very quickly say I'm reminded constantly or regularly reminded of, uh, something that Noel Gallagher said on 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 the on the um, one of the Oasis documentaries, maybe Supersonic, uh, and someone in the band had had. I don't know why I'm laughing. Someone in the band had had a nervous breakdown, and it was unclear whether they would be able to play two concerts at Earl's Court. And Noel Gallagher said that he didn't want Oasis to be a place for wimps. Now as regards someone actually having a nervous breakdown, I think that that is deeply unfair. Having said that, certainly in the early days of a band, a band has to discover and shed members, discover who is who has the toughness just to deal with, the, with, with what is required to establish yourself as a band or to try to establish yourself as a band. So here's the deal, Tom, we're in a band, I'll pick you up tomorrow and we'll drive in the van to Aberdeen. That kind of life isn't for everyone, okay? And the band needs to, to, to discover which, you know, who wants to live that kind of life. So I'm not, I guess what I'm trying to say here and not actually saying it very well is that the people who have decided that it, it is their life, they're already tough, you know, they're already tough. Men and women and, and uh, you know, I, I, don't, I, I don't really know many trans bands, but, but all, all, you know, all, in, all inclusive, they, have all, they, are, they are already tough. They have already got what my friend, my photographer friend, Gene Ambo in Chicago, vividly describes as puke on their shoes. They've already, already got puke on their shoes. You know, they're not babes in the wood. They're already tough, okay? Yeah. So if this is happening to tough people, then this is a problem. Yeah, very much so. And then I suppose when, when people are poorly, um, one of the ways of, of dealing with that is to kind of lose, lose control. And it's an industry that normalizes very peculiar behavior, right? So especially when it comes to um, the drink and the drugs and the staying up late and all that sort of stuff. So people can kind of, uh, a form of escapism for what they're experiencing. They can yes. just throw themselves into that life. And it's it's another story, right? So we, you know, we're not looking at them thinking, like um so an example myself something i thought of earlier today is you know i would if pete doherty was in the paper um up to whatever it is he normally gets up to i would have been the sort of person rather than look at him and think you know oh my god i hope he's okay i hope someone starts helping him soon mm. i would think well oh my god I hope he turns up on Thursday because I've got a ticket to the show. You know, yeah. like it becomes a whole, uh, we normalize that behavior, don't we? Of, um, of when people are dealing with, with these things. Um, I'm not quite sure I put that eloquently enough, but I know what you mean. Although that's not, I don't think that's an illegitimate consideration on your part. I'm not sure how to unpick that aspect of it. 
Because if you've bought a ticket and you're, you know, if he's playing in Manchester and you're going from the Wirral, I think it's reasonable to expect that the performer will turn up. I guess that's what I mean by tough. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, you know what I mean? But, I mean, Pete Doherty seems slightly different. I reviewed his, um, his autobiography, which unsurprisingly is a bit of a mess of a book. But much to my surprise, his, he seemed to regard his addiction as an ideology. He wanted to be this way. So I think that he might, although it's, of course, worth noting that he's no longer a practicing drug addict anymore. So even Pete Doherty moved on, you know, yeah. and that's sort of what you're looking at. You either move on or you die. Yeah. Yeah, very much so. Was it was that kind of um, was that your experience of, of mental illness, Ian? Because, you know, the book is like you said, it's two stories. It's, it's the story of the music industry and it's your own story weaved into that. Um, did your as a journalist rather than a musician, did that did the environment and the lifestyle, did that impact on your mental state as well? I, I, I over the course of my life. Tom, I have been assigned a variety of mental health diagnoses. I, it, with your permission, I won't go into exactly why that, that is, but there's an event in the book, in the middle of the book, that potential readers have, have, will have much to look forward to. Uh, that's quite a striking story that, that, that served as a springboard for, for, for a, a collapse in my life. Uh, and in attempting to figure out what, and I'm going to use the word wrong because it happened to me, so I can own that word. In, in an attempting to discover what was wrong with me, um, all manner of mental health uh, diagnoses were, 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 were attached to me. Um, I will, in fact, with your permission, reach for the book, and look, because I know where it is, uh, and tell you what it is. Uh, uh, I can't find it. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm I'm cooking this right up. Um, right. Okay. Here we go. Sorry about the delay there, Tom. Oh, no problem. Uh, in time, I'm quoting myself here. In time, medically qualified women and men will tell me that I have rapid cycling bipolar affective disorder, impulse control disorder, borderline personality disorder, and emotional dysregulation disorder. I also have post-traumatic stress disorder. And then I say from a stylistic point of view, that's a lot of disorder for one paragraph. Um, here's what I intuited, that, that the mental health services uh, not, I don't think through design, I just think through evolution, uh, mental, the, the, the field of mental health is at least a century behind the field of physical health. Um, I don't believe, or I don't recognize the, the thumping majority of those diagnoses, Tom, apart from impulse control disorder, which is absolutely nailed on. It's so nailed on that I use the word absolutely and I hate the word absolutely. That's how nailed on that is. And that has been present in me for as long as I can remember. That's, that's a given. So if you're working 
in an industry, although I never worked in the music industry, of course, I worked in the publishing industry, but the music, the, the music industry is where I, where, I, where I applied my trade, harvesting stories. Um, that was a very flowery way of describing it. Uh, <laughs> and you're in a world where the bar is high and that's, that's key there, the bar is higher in that world consistently. I mean, maybe it's also high in city trading rooms uh, or certainly has been, uh, but those people go home to their own bed every night. So they're not, you know, in a, in a, in a, in a sane asylum on wheels that, that a tour bus can be. Alcohol is the currency and I'm not implying that everybody takes drugs. And actually in the book, I say, that uh, everybody is tolerant of those that do. And that's true. I might not have explained that quite well enough. There may well be people who are opposed to, to, to drug taking, but they do not feel able to speak out against it. So that's a slightly different. An example of which, Tom, would be a band, some of your readers, readers, some of your listeners may know what a rider is, but a band has a rider and a rider is a, um, your requirements for your dressing room, your requirements in terms of refreshment for your dressing room. And even a support band will have a, a rider, certainly the headline band will. Um, and it will be, so you'll get to your, and only if a band goes into rehab or one of its members go into rehab will will this not be the case. Um, or or, or the, you know, a, a teetotal band anyway, a straight edge band. You will have at least a crate of beer. You will have a couple of bottles of wine and you will often have, it, certainly you'll have one bottle of spirits and sometimes more. So your listeners listening to the, to this podcast tom imagine getting to your place of work and there being booze there for you and as long as you're able to do your job without falling over that's essentially it without falling over you are at, at the very least welcome and be encouraged certainly encouraged by your workmates to drink some of that beer that 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 happens and that happens every day now you don't have to take that um, take that drink. You don't have to do that at all. You don't have to take that line that you're offered. You don't have to. And there is, you know, free will. But the game is rigged. Let I understand this. You know, people don't have to buy chocolate at the supermarket. But in the days when it was right there, but when you were queuing for the till, that game's rigged. People don't have to have a bet on the football. But if you're watching, for example, Manchester United versus Liverpool, uh, which uh, is a game that has been played this week at the time that we're conversing, you're gonna have to be pretty quick with the, with the remote to change channels every time a gambling advert comes on. And actually not, as, not in the case of those two teams, but in perhaps even a sizable minority of teams, they will have gambling advertisements on their shirts and gambling advertisements will be flashing up all around the pitch as you watch the game. So in that, in that, in a framework similar to that, the game is rigged. It's rigged. Hmm. 
so music always attracted people, Tom, uh, that, that had outlier personalities. We know this. We know this in Keith Moon uh, and Keith Richards and, and Janis Joplin. You know, the list is endless. But, but, but with the working conditions today, the fact that recorded music for all but a, a limited number of artists uh, is all but worthless, puts them out on the road. And people that were they working in, an, in, in, in a quote-unquote normal job wouldn't fall prey to the dangers of the music industry. They do so. So it, it, it's catching two birds. It's, it's killing two birds with one stone. As it relates to me, Tom, what it did, the music industry didn't make me ill. But what it did is it gave me perfect cover. It gave me so many places to hide. And it was only when my own behavior became, and I recognized this at the time and was actually quite measured about it. It was only when my behavior became life-threatening. It was only when my, my life was in danger. I would honestly truly say that it was did people begin to notice that something was wrong? So that's how I was able to marry my story with the other stories that I'm telling in the book. Yeah. So it's when I think when that, that game is, is rigged that you talked about. And I think people's reason for taking part in that game are all different as well. Yeah. So um, I used to work for a holiday company, right? And I was based overseas and it was very, very similar in some ways. It was basically, that was my attempt at like living the rock and roll lifestyle, right? Okay. Is to go and travel around with this holiday company. But, um, you know, it was very, very normal to get up in the morning and have a beer for breakfast because we're essentially, we're just on holiday for nine yeah. months of the year. And everyone would do it because that's just what you did. But I used to do it because I had incredible anxiety and I needed to get through the day, you know, right. because I was scared. So it, it gives you when you're self-medicating, it gives you somewhere to hide. And everyone else there was partying. And of course, that wasn't healthy for them, but it was particularly unhealthy for me because I was trying to blend in with everyone else. Right. Because it was given that was my courage, you know, that right. was giving me. Um, and I think, yeah, when we normalize these these things and then, it, yeah, you can just sneak in, can't you? Like you say, you can hide, you can be disguised for a for a long, long time. Yeah. Um, I, Sorry, I was, I was just going to very briefly say, Tom, so what you were doing there, I don't know how you, your, your anxiety is uh, these days. I'm uh, now, and I'm sure then, the outside, pe people who didn't know you, people to whom you hadn't spoken about, about this, wouldn't have spotted this in you. Not at all. Because you, you're, you're projecting because everyone else is doing it. So I just right. fit right in. But my and reasons for doing it were very different to their reasons. Yes, but also, you know, also, yeah, right. That's the thing, maybe. <laughs> so when a band comes on stage, they too are projecting. I will have, and, and, I, and, and when I see a band live, I want to believe what I'm seeing even now, right? Some of them might have had a, literally had a punch up before they came on stage. Or some of them might have to have been coaxed onto that stage. And, and there, there are innumerable scenarios. And for the majority of time, it will be, right, we're playing a gig. Here we go. Sometimes it will be, oh, my God, I'm so excited about playing here. Here we go. Sometimes it will be, I, I don't know if I can do this tonight. Here we go. But when they get out there, the overwhelming majority of bands, in fact, I, I, from the top of my head, 
Tom, I, can, I can't actually think of an exception. Boom, house lights down, intro music playing, it's showtime. And I guess a muscle memory takes over. So there is that projection again. And again, a distance between what lurks at the core and, and, and I'm not suggesting that they're faking it or it's insincere. All bands are, 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 that I, in my experience, are in agreement that the magic happens on stage. It makes everything worthwhile. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, it might kick in and it might be general, genuine. But there are 22 hours of the day on tour when you're not on stage. Yeah. And, you know, pretending you're okay when you're not is fucking exhausting. It's like one of the hardest things that you can do, regardless of why you have to do it, whether you're on yeah. stage or whether you're showing up at the office, right? It's it's right. A, a horrible place to, to be in. You mentioned um, Biffy Clyro before, and they were one of the, the bands in your book that kind of found a way around this, you know, found a way to kind of look after themselves within the industry. And um, another one that jumps out because I've had him on this podcast and I know that he's your friend is Frank Turner as well. Ah. He's, you know, so like I spoke to Frank about his, his like substance issues. And um, once he got himself sorted, he's managed to jump back to some extent into his life on that tour bus, right? And found a way to make it work for him so there is you know i think whether that's bands of a certain size or whether it's just the know-how or the experience of having the wheels come off and having to put them back on again um it kind of some people are finding a way to navigate this world aren't they and still be still be okay yeah it's 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 easier for frank uh oh, it, no that let me let me withdraw that it's different for frank because frank is a solo artist so Frank can make the decision as to what makes him happy, okay? The relationship between Frank and his band, the band called The Sleeping Souls, like Elvis Costello and The Imposters or Bruce Springsteen and The E Street Band or Bob Marley and The Wailers, the relationship is different. They all get on great, but it's not a marriage of equals. Of course it's not. Um, and if uh, so, Frank can make those decisions and the other people in the band can decide if this is what they want to do. One of the problems with bands, Don, Don Letts, the great punk historian and documentarian, I mentioned this in the book, once said that you look at bands seven or eight years, that's their that's their period of magic and 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 that's not in my opinion that's not overwhelmingly true but i i think i would say i mean i i think of this all the time i would say that it it holds true in a small majority of cases you know metallica the music the magic of the first seven seven years uh, and the smiths for example and that's because in the marriage of equals even if you have the band has a leader and, and, and most bands do, at least one or two leaders, uh, people's priorities change. You know, people have families. They're, when the band starts, begins its life, once you've found the right membership, that's the most important thing in your life, you know? And that, that inevitably changes. Families come into it. Just a desire to slow down. And, and bands are, are invariably not quite on the same speed. And then they get to the point when they're maybe 50, as Metallica seemed to have done, they reach this point of easy agreement 
where it almost seems like fun again. But those perilous 20 years in between are, they're very difficult to navigate, as you see by the, the amount of bands that change members that split up or whatnot. Uh, the Stones as well, that's another great example. Why are the Stones touring? Because the Stones want to tour, you know? <laughs> That that that's why it's 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 fun and it's 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 it, they've survived. But for a lot of artists, you, you know, you said earlier in the sh- in, in, toward the top of the show, uh, Tom, the confusion between who you are and as an individual and who you are as a member of the band. That's really key. That's really really important. But yeah, you need to you need to figure out a work life balance. But it, and in that, it's no different from other jobs. Apart from your work-life balance might be, well, I'm going to spend two months at home if I'm able to, because I've just spent three months away from home. And then at the end of that two months, all that month, actually, uh, the, I'm going to spend another two months away from home. So you have to, because the, a band... If, the, if demand exists, it is possible, and in fact, it is indeed encouraged for a band to to um, to, to remain on the road. I I just very quickly because I know I know I'm taking up a lot of, of the listeners' time. I, I I hope he doesn't mind me mentioning this. I I appeared at a, a festival uh, on stage at a festival last month. Uh, at the end of July, called uh, anyway a, a little festival called Deer Shed. And I was interviewed on stage by uh, James Smith, who is the singer in Yard Act, to whom I had sent a copy of the book uh, because I had interviewed them for a broadsheet newspaper at the start of the year. And the first really lovely thing that happened was that, and I didn't know James at all, at all. I, I knew James at that point, as well as I know you now. This was our experience of just speaking together on Zoom. So I sent him a book and, and he was lovely and under the band's Twitter profile. He was lovely enough to, to, to tweet about it, saying that, that my observations were correct as, as they saw them. In fact, the phrase was, I implore you to read this book. All right, you made me say it. Yeah, take it, uh, own and, it. And um, and and James uh, has a uh, has a as a partner and and uh, a young a young boy who's, who's one and their life goes on when you're not when they're on tour as well. So not only do you miss them, but they miss you, and that's important to remember. And Yard Actor Yard Actor are a happening band. They're in the you know they're nominated for the Mercury Music Prize. And, and it's happening for them after years of trying in various guises, it's happening for them. But this month, this being July, they cancelled uh, several appearances at festivals in Europe because they were exhausted. Now, James was kind enough to tell me that the, the bodies, the book, um, played a part in that decision making and I'm and and if and and I mean obviously I have no reason to doubt him that is incredibly valuable information to me uh, uh valuable valuable is not the right word actually Tom it's incredibly heartwarming information to me it's meaningful information to me 
that they were able to go, right, actually, we're, we're knackered. I want to spend just a couple of weeks home, three weeks home, and then we'll go. Because when you're in the middle of it, it feels like everything will fall apart if you stop for a moment, and it won't. You know, it just won't. And that, you know, they got some quality time with the family, a change as good as a rest. Uh, they got to wake in their own beds. They got to go to the pub for a lunchtime pint if they wanted. They got to walk the Yorkshire Dales if they wanted, whatever it was. And boom, they're back in the game. And, 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 and so these, these, these tune-ups are not always particularly difficult. So yeah. that, was, that, that, was, that was a nice thing to hear. Yeah, that's a really I, lovely thing, huh? Yeah, I yeah. hope he doesn't strike me off the, the body list after that. So. <laughs> uh, and it's nice as well, because Yard Act are a super cool band, where most of the bands that I hang out with, uh, they're not critically lauded. So that's that, that's, that was nice as well. To be, Even nice be friend, To be a friend with one of the beautiful people. As well. <laughs> yeah, that's it. No, that's really lovely. And I think that's the thing, is that we all think, no matter what we do, I certainly get it with this podcast, you know, I kind of think that, oh, if I take this week off, that's when I miss the email or that's when the right. DM or, you know, and that, that keeps us going. But in, I think particularly more in the music industry, we are still we are starting to see more people take gigs off because they need a rest. And I think um, long may it continue, you know, like and, and um, also, good for them. Also very quickly, there's also this strange dynamic that I recognise now as a, as a, as a, as a book writer. Uh there's this strange dynamic of, of, of there being other bands that are that are in your position. This is particularly true for younger bands. And you've met these bands and you've played with them and they're great because they're people like you. So you want them to do well, but when they start doing well and doing better than you are, you're aware of that that, that someone's pulling ahead. It's that's incredibly, incredibly complicated. Uh, this year there's been a a, 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 a a tranche of really, really, really good music books. I mean, mine's the best one, obviously. But there's, um, again, I'm, that's a joke. Uh, it's half a joke. Uh, but, you know, there's The Sound of Being Human by Jude Rogers, and there's 10,000 Apologies by Adele Stripe. Uh, and, there's, you know, there's a number of other ones that I'm, that I'm, 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 I'm overlooking. Here's some advice to anyone that's written the book. Don't check the Amazon numbers every day because you'll drive yourself mad. Not only do I check the Amazon numbers every day, I know at what time they update the numbers. So I check them four or five times a day. Now, it, I'm pleased to report that, that, that after what, almost, uh, actually more than four months, just over four months on the shelves, Bodies is continuing to, to sell, which is obviously lovely because a book, you write, you write a book to write a book and then you write a book because you want the, the readers. Uh, but I also, I shouldn't really say this, I also look at how the, you know, I, I don't view them as competition at all. That's not, I absolutely do not. And I've met Adele and I've met Jude uh, particularly. Uh, in fact, we, we appeared at, at an event to, to more not together but we spoke uh it was like a three-band bill uh jude spoke then i spoke and then uh, adele spoke and it was great it was lovely to chat with them it was lovely to, to, to be a part of it and i want i want them to to do well that sounds awfully like like i'm patronizing i hope i'm not meaning to i i, I want them to do well because the books are great but i don't want 
I, I don't want to do badly. So if I'm doing worse than them, suddenly that, that, that's complicated. You know, I don't necessarily want to crush them, but I want to be in the game. I want to, I want to feel like I'm, I'm, I'm you know, part of, of that strata, really. Yeah. Uh, and that's true for a band. They're, you know, sort of, it's not, it's not envy, but it is insecurity. You know, you're aware of the insecurity of what you do. So that I think is it, it, that's also difficult for bands, and how could it not be? Yeah. How could it not? How could it not be difficult for Anthrax when they were, you know, selling not that many fewer albums than Metallica, to the point where Metallica are a hundred times more popular. Yeah, and then their career has plateaued a little bit. That's just one example. Yeah, very much so. Yeah, the classics is um, Dave Mustang, isn't it? Still judges his career as a failure because Megadeth aren't as big as Metallica, even though which Megadeth is heart- are massive. Which is, which is heartbreaking. It is. It really is, isn't yeah, it? It's yeah. Yeah. yeah, but it's, it's um, and, and also Dave, shut up, will you? You're in Metallica for like t- two years. <laughs> shut up. Look at all this other stuff you've done. That's but it. Yeah, yeah. Okay, but, but there you have it. Yeah, mate. I'm exactly the same with podcast downloads. It's not why I do it, but I still like them anyway. You know, and right, uh, you know? yeah, and I, I hate myself when I check. But um, Ian, that's um, an absolute pleasure to chat to you today, mate. I enjoyed oh, it I really enjoyed it. Too. And um, yeah, I, I've been singing your. Uh, singing the praise of your book so anyone will listen i really did it I, it was a matter of days i got through it i couldn't put it down and um like i love the music stuff i love the mental health stuff and um yeah i'm not going to make this awkward because of the weird zoom eye contact thing where we have to stare at each other and i say nice things about you but it's um, okay yeah but it's a wonderful read and i'll make sure all the all the links and everything are in the episode notes to it fabulous tom i've really mm. really enjoyed speaking to you bub Oh mate, it's lovely to meet you. And yeah, thank you for your time. And um, yeah, all all the all the best, mate. All the best. Lovely, lovely Tom. Have a lovely uh, afternoon on the world. Oh, you too. All right, Peter. Cheers. Ta-da. Bye bye. bye. Big up to the proper mental podcast. The proper mental podcast.